Hello, I'm Mark Riley, and I'm Rob Hughes, and you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. Okay, Bob. So where are we going to this time? Well, Mark, F is for foot stomping and fame. And fame, of course. You know, joined at the hip, lest mm. we forget. So foot stomping. It was originally a 1961 single by the Flares, and that was a band that included Richard Berry in the lineup, and he's best known for writing Louie Louie. Yeah. Now he's best known for writing Louie Louie. I, I just wonder if he got the full writing credit because if he did, then I mean, can you imagine how much that mm. is worth? How many people have covered that? Well, it is the most covered song, isn't it? It's the garage anthem. Any band worth their salt would start off doing Louie Louie. I think there was a problem with the uh, sort of composition credits of that, weren't there? A lot of people claim credit for that. Yeah, a lot of people did it and put the names on it and stuff, mm. as I remember. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, also, a lot of bands who couldn't really play did it as That's well, because right. it's only three chords, isn't it? Yeah, it's dead So simple. most of the bands, even the punk bands that I used to go and see, mm. a lot of them would do it just because you, you learn three chords, literally. You do Louie Louie. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, yeah, uh, Richard Berry within the lineup, early incarnation formed 1952. Uh, there were various lines up over the years, weren't there? Yeah, there were. So in 1958, a depleted Flares joined up with another splintered group called the Cadets. One one of whom uh, was a guy called Aaron Collins. The Cadets' biggest hit happened in 1956, didn't it? This was uh, Stranded in the Jungle, which achieved a kind of um, you know post-fame later on when New York, New York Dolls covered it. Yeah, uh, one of my favourite New York Dolls songs, and it's not there. So 1961, Foot Stomping Part 1 was released, and it made the top 20 in the Black Singles Chart, number 25 in the Billboard Top 100, so it did very well. Yeah, so you wonder what's this all got to do with David Bowie, you might think. Well, so, forward to 1974, the 2nd of November, November, David Bowie's invited onto the American TV show hosted by Dick Cavett, isn't this, he? This is a really famous appearance. And we, we have talked about this in one of the other uh, podcasts, but Bowie isn't in the best shape. He looks emaciated, doesn't he? But at the same time, he's in fantastic form. He's playing some live tunes on there, just an amazing version of 1984. Then he does Young Americans. The interview itself with Dick Cavett is a strange one. Previously little, discussed. Yeah, a little bit car crash TV. And then to close the show, he does foot stomping, which is just incredibly thrilling, isn't it? It's just a wonderful piece of TV. It's a brilliant thing to watch because not only, I mean, Bowie's really strutting his stuff, but also Ava Cherry's dancing around the stage, not singing so much. He's got the backing singers with him, including Warren Peace, you know, Jeff McCormack. And it is just a really great, great piece of TV, isn't it? It is. It's absolutely wonderful. So the story from that then kind of tells that the riff that Carlos Alomar, the guitar player, worked for it was thought by Bowie to be too good to be used on a, or to be wasted really, on a cover version. And that, he was right. Yeah, he was right. So they decided to work it up into a song and they booked time at the Electric Lady Studios in New York at the very beginning of 1975. Okay, so you need to picture the time really because Young Americans or Gouster, that had been recorded at Sigma Sound in Philadelphia and to all intents and purposes the, the album was finished. As mm. we know, Tony Visconti took the tapes, I think, back to London uh, to mix them. But then when Bowie got to New York, he just had some other ideas, didn't he? And, and, and he'd become good friends with John Lennon. Yeah. And so they decided to go into the studio. He'd take a, his band with Carlos Alomar, those guys, mm. in to play with him. And, uh, and you know, probably a little homage and a little kind of a, you know, a, a, a doff of the uh, old cap Definitely. to John Lennon doing Across the Universe. Yes. Which kind of seemed a little bit pointless in the whole realms of young Americans, but never mind about well, that. Well, you know, he's paying his dues, as, he, as you say. But at the same time, they have a go 
uh, sort of working up this riff of Olimar's, which is still a little bit kind of shapeless song-wise. And then as it goes along, John Lennon kept singing the words aim, aim over and over again, which obviously just doesn't mean anything at all. And so Bowie kind of takes it into, well, changes it to fame. Well, he does. And also, I mean, if you think about it, there is a great irony within the song fame, uh, but it was a barbed kind of uh, sideswipe of the main man management company who had fallen out with, and uh, it will get mentioned quite often throughout the whole podcast, but he wasn't happy. Financially, he wasn't sound. Yeah. And he had a lot of anger in him. Yeah. I mean, he did say it himself, didn't he? He just said, you know, a lot of the anger that was in, within him came out in that song. Yeah. I mean, describe, talking about the song later, Bowie said he called it nasty, ugly, said it was written with a degree of malice uh, and was his least favourite song on the album. Yeah, the weird thing is that it was a, a number one in America, mm. which, of course, brought about it more fame. Absolutely. And of fame, Bowie did say, famously, uh, that, you know, uh, the only thing it was good for was getting you a, a seat in a restaurant. I also said it didn't really strike him as being the ideal choice for a single, which seems crazy now. It just seemed perfect for a single. And he, produ- he sang it on TV shows in the States like Soul Train, where he wasn't quite himself, but it's still a, a great mind performance. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. F is for Susie Fussy or Ronson, if you like. That's right. Born a few years after the Second World War, so it's all a bit sketchy, her beginnings, in Bromley, Kent. Well, I couldn't find an actual date for her. I mean, I, I didn't I didn't trawl for it forever. And to be honest, I mean, I could probably have asked Lisa, Lisa Ronson, yes. who we'll talk about a little bit later mm. on. But uh, I thought, no, just be vague, Mark. That's what people expect anyway. Vague is fine. Nothing wrong with vague. So by the age of 15, she enrolls in the Evelyn Paget. Paget? Paget, I would imagine, with it being in Bromley. But... <laughs> <laughs> if, it, if it had been in Gay Paris, maybe. You could be right, Bob. I really, well, I, I can't say 100%, but I would have said Paget. That's fine. I've got to say Paget. I'm just very presumptuous of it. Anyway, the uh, College of Hair and Beauty, as you say, in Bromley. She wasn't particularly desperate to be a hairdresser, but at the same time, she wasn't really qualified to have a, to chase a dream job. So she, it sounds like she just made do with this, you know? She was obviously good at it, though, because she ended up in Elizabeth Paget's um, <laughs> flagship salon in Bockenham. Uh, sorry, Beckenham. <laughs> uh, but, it, but it was whilst working here, obviously a, a, a proper member of the team and everything, yes. but she met Peggy Jones, um, and now she had a regular shampoo and set, 2.45 every Thursday afternoon, maybe even a trim, or occasionally get this, Bob. I know that you will be longing for this now, a chocolate rinse. Oh, I can't believe it. first time I've heard that phrase. Well, certainly in hairdressing terms, Mark. Well, well anyway, you don't you know, go to the hairdressers no, very often, do you? You no. do your own like I do. <laughs> That's why my wife does it. But anyway, so obviously while she's sat there, you, you get talking, don't you? Where are you going this year for your holiday? What you've been up to? You know, the subject of her, uh, Peggy's son often came up while they were talking. And she'd say, you know, he's a singer in a band. She'd say, oh, you know, he's a very artistic child, which isn't, you know, that's quite common, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you you can imagine, can't you? Like, he's, oh, so um, what's going on with you? Oh, well, yeah, my son's very artistic, you know. Oh, is he really? Oh, yes, he's been in theatre and all Oh, yeah, it's right. all right. But then, uh, then, then the uh, title of a song called Space Oddity ah. came up and it all came home to roost for Susie Fussy, didn't it? And she recognised that she was indeed talking about David Bowie. Yeah, and she then really you know, puts two and two together. Yeah, I've seen Bowie walking down Beckenham High Street with Angie soon to be wife right and then one day of course Bowie's mum brought Angie into the salon and she and uh, Angie hit it off this is Susie and Angie of course get towards Christmas now 1971 Angie wanted a haircut in but there were no slots left at the salon so what do you do well you go to somebody's house don't you that's what you did yeah I mean I don't even know because it's not my realm not mm. hairdressing or really? or doing foreigners but that's that was the phrase wasn't it I don't know I don't know how that's considered these days yeah. but it used to be called doing a foreigner so if you were a builder and you went away at the weekend and you 
did work for yourself and didn't mm. tell the boss it was called a foreigner. And that's what this was, in effect, wasn't it? So she went off to Haddon Hall... That's right. Uh, ..to cut the hair because he couldn't find a slot for her within the book, the, yeah. the booking book. absolutely. So entirely book. natural. Uh, so when she gets there, Bowie and Angie were discussing whether or not you should cut off his long flowing locks. Of course, you know, you think about the cover of uh, Hunky Dory when he's doing his favourite, favorite, you know, his famous Greta Garbo pose there. These wonderful, long, lustrous hair. He doesn't want any of that, that anymore. He wants to have it all shorn off. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, there's other reasons for him having his hair cut for, uh, further down the line. Mm. But also, if you think of all of the uh, photographs of him at Haddon Hall, there's loads of him with that. He's often wearing that big hat, isn't he? Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and the, the white blouse and the Oxford bags. And, and, and the long hair was a, a big part of his image, wasn't it? So Susie Gunny, being a hairdresser, of course, gives the officer a penny's worth. Nobody has short hair. She says, uh, you'll be the first one. So Bowie then shows her, this is a famous photograph on there from Vogue magazine of a woman with very bright red spiky hair and said, look, do you think you could do that for me? Yeah, and they've actually got that magazine in the David Bowie's exhibition, mm. so I, I have seen it. I don't even know if it was Angie who introduced Bowie to that uh, originally. That is okay. one story that's flying about, but who knows? Probably only the two of them were in the room. I mean, Susie was a bit surprised that he was asking for a woman's hair, dude, yeah. at that point in time, but uh, get used to it. Well, it was a challenge. <laughs> you know, I mean, and that was it. So she thought it would be a challenge, yes. but she'd go for it. So 30 minutes later, it was cut, but it was mm. limp. Now all this is so great, yeah. not spiky. No. So she hoped and prayed that putting a tint on it would help it stand up. Now, she said Schwarzkopf Red Hot Red with 30 volume peroxide uh, was what she used. That's right. being very specific. Mm. But that combined with an anti-dandruff treatment called Guard. She said that did the job. It's set like stone. <laughs> oh. I'm sure it would. You know when you see people whose hair just doesn't move and you think, <laughs> how do you get that? But I remember well, at the time, you know, I mean, I never I never went anywhere near it. I wasn't that adventurous, pretty shy kind of a creature. Mm, yes. Uh, but there were a few kids around our way who had the Bowie cut. Oh, really? Yeah, and uh, and and some of them pulled it off really well. Yeah. I was so jealous. Oh, so anyway, so Bowie and Angie kind of loved it. Two pounds, not bad at all. It's I mean, this is, you know, defines an era here. So the week after that, Susie gets a call from Angie inviting her over to one of the early Ziggy shows. And she loves it. Soon after, she gets offered a job by Main Man Management and she's becoming Bowie and the Spider's personal hairdresser, which must have seemed like a dream job at that point. Yeah, being taken off the high street and then even just touring Britain mm. and, you know, and stopping in hotels, all very glamorous. But she turned Woody Woodmansey blonde. She turned Trevor Boulder's sideburn silver and she tried to turn Mick Ronson into something else but he wouldn't have any of it which again is is a thread emerging throughout a lot of these different uh, podcasts whereby Mick Ronson was the least willing to take on board the glam attitude yeah. wasn't he but he um, seemed the most perfect for it that's the thing isn't it it's a crazy thing it so, did him no harm I mean no. again we'll we'll get to it in the Mick Ronson bit but uh, yeah. when he realised that the, the girls did actually like uh, what the other guys were doing yeah. they thought right okay well I'll, I'll give it a go exactly so the Ziggy Cut is all the rage around Britain and she becomes a really important kind of an integral member of uh, Bowie's touring party, not only kind of cutting his hair and for the rest of the band, but helping with all the costume changes. She would wait in the wings, apparently, with a glass of red wine and a ciggy when uh, Ronson was doing his, you know, famous guitar solos, and Bowie would just kind of take it from her. It was. It was a glamorous life, keeping Davy Bowie glamorous. Best hotels, travelling the world eventually, met all the other rock stars. But if you look at um, the, the, the photographs, and there's plenty of them, let's face it, of Davy Bowie backstage getting changed from one costume to another, it's always Susie with him. There's, yeah. There's quite often another woman uh, there as well, who I don't know the identity of. Um, but, uh, yeah, she, she was omnipresent, wasn't she? Absolutely. And, of course, by the end of the final Ziggy tour, final Ziggy show, which we'll get to shortly, mm. uh, she's fallen in love with 
Mick Ronson completely and she moves to London with him. Yes. And they have a daughter, Lisa Ronson. Absolutely, Lisa Ronson. I've met Lisa on a couple of occasions and she, she's so great. I saw her performing with Holy Holy and uh, yeah, she's a mm. very, very talented and brilliant lady. Uh, but uh, a quote from Susie, she said, I am so grateful to David. He took a chance on me. My haircut is on British currency now, the Brixton £10 note. Now, who would have thought I could have done that? So, and, and I did meet Susie as well uh, in, in the company of yeah. Lisa, uh, just briefly in Hull at the uh, Holy Holy gig. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. F is also for Freddie Baretti. Yeah, born Frederick Barrett in Hackney, 1951. Died in Paris, uh, May 2001, aged just 49. But he is the fashion designer who, at only 20 years of age, is credited by Bowie as the ultimate co-shaper of the Ziggy look. Yeah, so he was working for a Greek tailor on the King's Road in the late 60s and he met Bowie in the El Sombrero Club, which is a gay disco in London. Yeah. Uh, and uh, in the company of Bowie as well, and, and, and Angie Bowie, rather. And she did say, uh, first of all, you have no idea how handsome this man was. David spotted him at the Sombrero. He was wearing white spandex hot pants with a navy blue sailor's trim and a sailor shirt. Oh. He looked totally Scandinavian. Well, he doesn't sound it. <laughs> uh, oh, I see where she's going. With high cheekbones and lots of blonde hair. Ah. But he was tall and had big hands and feet, speaking of his artistry and physical stamina. Absolutely. Whoa, right. down, <laughs> uh, So every night he made new clothes to wear. He was mm. so brilliant. He worked for a Greek tailor in the King's Road and he had a machine at home, so he did work there too. Once we met and got to know each other, I brought him down to live at Haddon Hall because it was easier for him to have everyone available for fittings, etc. Before they went off on tour, he came for the weekend and stayed for a couple of months and then Freddie and Daniela, his girlfriend, came with us to New York. Uh, so uh, uh, another gift of a, a, an invitation for somebody oh. in the art, somebody creative, to hook up with David Bowie. Absolutely. So Beretti inspired Bowie to put in one of his early bands. We talked about Arnold Corns, one of the other uh, podcast episodes, which w- he went by the pseudonym Rudy Valentino in this, in this band. And Bowie had said he hoped to turn Beretti into the next Mick Jagger. You've got to say this was tongue-in-cheek, because you know, as we've discussed, the Arnold Corns thing was really a front for Bowie to get his new material over. And a bit of a sort of a way of kind of like a sort of screen from his record company so he didn't really know what he was up to. Maybe, but I mean, if it had have happened and he said, well, I said I was going to turn you into the next Mick Jagger, he might have been brilliant, but as mm. we've covered before, he couldn't sing. Yeah. Which was a, a, a flaw. But that, well, there is, is certainly a flaw as a front man. Instead, though, never mind all that, he becomes Bowie's sartorial advisor. Skills very much in evidence we'll get to in a little bit, but certainly, you know, things that you think about the Life on Mars video and that wonderful ice blue satin suit that Bowie wore, that's designed by Freddie Baretti. Liberties of London was like the place he'd go to. So he'd, he'd come up with that incredible quilted jumpsuit that Bowie wore on top of the Pops and Old Grey Whistle Test, which is like, for me, it's just the quintessential Ziggy outfit. That's completely iconic, isn't yeah. it? And um, I don't know if I've mentioned it before, probably have, I probably mentioned it every day in my life, but yeah, yeah, you you go to the David Bowie years exhibition and that was like the second uh, costume that you saw as I ah. remember and I was looking at it I completely lost in it mm. completely in awe of it and then I looked around and there's a small plaque with a, a quote from me on it and that was when I thought well like, you, were, you have arrived now Mark that, that's oh. the end of it well that, that one in particular that quilted suit just oh yeah oh. to see that was something else it's incredible. Inspired by Clockwork Orange, of course, wasn't it? So Bowie, you know, been to see that, and he had something vague in his mind about something 
similar to the droogie overalls that they wore in the film, but in exotic colours. It's just something a little bit different, printed fabric rather than just something plain. And yeah. nobody else was wearing anything like no. that, were they? I mean, if anybody was getting a little bit glam, it would normally be silk, wouldn't it? And if you look mm. at, like, the suite doing the blockbuster or whatever, you know, which is obviously a bit further down the line, mm. but all their gear was just kind of flimsy silk stuff, yeah. which you could see somebody running up quite easily. Yeah. Uh, but to, to choose that kind of material and having somebody like Beretti doing it and going to, like, you know, the Cypriot markets and all that kind of stuff, mm. just, yeah, a league apart. Absolutely. As you say, so Beretti would go to the Cypriot street markets for inspiration. And, of course, he clothed the spiders as well. So we get all these incredible fabrics, a lot of velveteen cords, uh, blues, baby blues, denim cod pieces as well. Again, Mick Ronson probably not too keen on all that stuff. But, it, you know, the vision, the Bowie had the vision. Freddie Beretti helped him realise all that. I mean, there are great stories in Woody Woodman's book, you know, Spider from Mars, and there's one particular altercation where, and I don't know if it's a Beretti creation, it, it, it probably is, but uh, it, Woody said he looked like a deck chair, <laughs> uh, and he just wouldn't wear it, and he was having a massive Barney with Bowie, I think it was at the Radio City Music Hall in, right. uh, in New York, and uh, he was just saying that, you know, people will come and sit on me, I look like a deck chair, I'm not wearing it, and they were still having a Barney when they got on stage, really? and they were doing the first tune, they were wow. at each other, uh, and Woody tells that story so brilliantly. Oh. Uh, but uh, we mentioned uh, Daniela, who's uh, mm. Freddie Beretti's girlfriend. So she would wear his, all his creations. So, you know, but yeah, she had the frame for it. and also, She was an inspiration to, uh, well, both David and Angie, wasn't she? Uh, he was really struck by her short peroxide hair and the kind of shapes shaved into the back of it. And Bowie said later, he said, blessed with absolute style, she unwittingly changed so much of how female Britain looked uh, after my then-wife copped a sense of style and a haircut, slipped into a bunch of my photo sessions, uh, dressed basically as Daniela. So right, okay. there's a lot of inspiration going on here. Certainly. There really is. I wonder where Daniela is now. Um, but anyway, so uh, Freddie Barretti does get name-checked in All Young Dudes. Mm. Wendy's stealing clothes from Marks and Sparks and Freddie's got spots from ripping off the stars from his face, Freddie Barretti. That's right. And then it gets a little bit sketchy here. So by 1974... Beretti had his own label called Fred of the East End, and he was still doing the odd piece for Bowie, including... Cod uh, piece. <laughs> doing the odd, odd, piece. odd piece and cod piece, I'd imagine, <laughs> including that great powder blue suit that he wears on uh, David Live and other things. But apparently Beretti had a bit of a uh, falling out with main man and Tony DeFries. Would that have been about money, do you think, possibly? Whoa, I don't know. It's a wild stab in the dark, Mark, yeah. but very possibly. Okay. And so he announced his intention. Beretti said to Bowie, look, I'm going to go and work for Valentino in Italy. And the two men just lost touch after that. Yeah, it's and strange then... that, isn't it, really? Uh, mm. He went to work in Tel Aviv, didn't he, in 1978. And there was at one point that uh, he'd been gone for so long. I mean, this is really tragic mm. that his family were uh, putting him on the uh, missing persons register. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was in Rome at some point by the mid-'80s. He had a port portfolio that he lost in a, in a house fire, apparently. Mm. Uh, when he died of cancer in Paris in 2001, his family didn't know anything about it until much later on, and it transpired he'd been in Paris for the last 10 years of his life. Right, OK. And so when, when he passed away, Bowie paid tribute to him, naturally. He said, I am so sad at this particular passing, as he was generally one of the nicest, most talented spirits that I have had the honour of working with. Freddie and I changed our world, small as it was, to what we thought it could be. He lives on for me through his creative genius. I kept all your stuff Fred, I lost very little. I've got all the best things. I look after them for you. God bless. And that, of course, the evidence being David Bowie is. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. F is for fashion, both the song and Bowie's trend setting. Oh, there's no denying that, mate, absolutely. So according to co-producer Tony Visconti, it was the last song completed in the Scary Monsters sessions and its bass line and some of the melody taking inspiration from Bowie's Golden Years. Yeah, initially uh, developed from a basic uh, riff from Golden Years using the title Jamaica. 
which okay. is intriguing. Right, OK. Uh, Robert Fripp's all over it, of course, a great sort of uh, clipped, funky feel to that. The personnel, you've got Bowie on vocals and keyboards, Fripp on guitar, also Carlos Alomar on guitar, and then the trusty rhythm section, George Murray on bass, Dennis Davis drums, and Andy Clark on synthesizer. Yeah, and also, I mean, the, one of the kind of legends and, uh, and, and the, one of the songs uh, stored away in a cupboard for so long, Rupert the Riley, mm. uh, which was named after Bowie's car, wasn't That's right, it? Yes. That's right, isn't it? Uh, but that understandably had a beep beep Mm, within it and so that was taken from it so again it's a little bit like we've talked about uh, Lou Reed you know um, taking stuff from previous material mm. and, and recycling it well uh, there's another example of David Bowie doing exactly the same thing there definitely so he's plundering his own past again in the line People from Bad Homes which was the title track of uh, an album he did with his protégés the Astronets with uh, Ava Cherry in there in 1973 Jeff McCormack yeah, yeah absolutely and then Bowie says the references in the song to the goon squad coming to town was a and a quote here a, a move on from from the Ray Davis concept of fashion to suggest more of a gritted teeth determination and an unsureness about why one's doing it in the first place. Yeah, and uh, David Buckley, in his book, we can see it from here, Strange Fascination, mm. he said that Bowie poked fun at the banality of the dance floor and the style fascists of the New Romantic movement, which is in itself, again, interesting, because uh, we know that it was a New Romantic uh, movement and the Club Blitz that he plundered for the Ashes to Ashes video. Yeah. Abs- and they were all Bowie fans. Of course they were, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, the Bromley contingent and all the rest of that. Bowie did also say that it was a kind of satire or a follow-up, a parody follow-up to the Kinks' dedicated follower of fashion. So you get like two sides of Bowie here. You get the, the you know, the fashionista. He really is interested in in how he looks and everything. But at the same time, he sees the movements that are going on and sees the vacuity in it and doesn't like all that. He also, he, I mean, the thing about Bowie is, it seems from the outside that he he, he did like it when people name checked him and and showed kind of uh, deference to him and, mm. and said that they were influenced by him. But he also didn't like it to be too close, did yes. he? You know, we've mentioned Gary Newman before, mm. and, and I think Bowie thought that he was just skirting a little bit too close to his own oeuvre yeah. uh, and didn't like it. Yeah, as long as you could bury it in there somewhere, he was all right with all that. So the video is a great video, shot by David Mallet, who also did Ashes to Ashes, of course, famously, in a New York club called Hurrah, which was owned by his mate called Robert uh, Boykin. And you've got Bowie on stage, the stage draped in this uh, khaki canvas. Various people in there. Carlos Alomar's on there, uh, his guitarist Steve Lowe, and also May Pang, who ended up marrying Tony Visconti. She did. She did, yes, absolutely. And he performed it at the 1997 Madison Square Garden birthday bash, didn't he, with the mm. Pixies' Frank Black? Yeah. So it gets to number five in the UK, gets to number 70 in the States, which just seems, what a waste. But that in itself was the first chart single that Bowie'd had there for four years, which just seems incredible. Seems incredible, yeah. So uh, let's move on to Bowie's fashion mm. sense, which was, uh, we've just talked about it, legendary anyway, so yeah. off the back of Freddie Beretti and all that. But Bowie said, I do think that fashion is really, really funny. It's so nonsensical, we don't have to do it. No. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, and do you know what? It is a, I remember a great description of um, art. What is art? Mm. Is, I mean, it is a good question, isn't it? What is art? And you could say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move that piece of paper from there to there, and that's a work of art, as I see it. And you'd be surprised if anybody wanted to buy it. Yes. But Brian Eno once said, you know, even your haircut is a work of art, because he described it as something you don't have to do. Yes. That's how he yeah. simply defined it, which is which is absolutely brilliant, because if you think about it, you could just not bother with your hair, you could let it grow forever, and when it and when it got to the point where it was getting on your nerves or you were tucking it into your underpants, mm. you'd just take a scissor to it, but no, you think, I'm going to have my hair cut, I'm going to have it cut in a certain way, even if it's like me and you, just a short back and side oh, for yes. whatever reason. Yeah. And so, uh, so again, Bowie, so uh, ensconced in the world of fashion, uh, but also... 
have got this playful attitude to yeah, it. Yeah, no, it's brilliant, that. And, of course, he's interested in clothes and hairstyles from a very early age. So even as a schoolboy, uh, Bowie supposedly started a trend for tapered trousers at his school in Bromley, which we'll have more of in a little bit, by the way. And he used to dye his hair with food colouring, even as an early teen. I wonder if the food was chocolate, and I wonder if it was a chocolate rinse. Oh, I, I wonder not. if his mum was ripping him off even at this stage. Oh. Yeah, so it's worth thinking of, isn't it? But also he was a mod, you know, with, mm. the, with the buzz, wasn't he, and the mod look and all that kind of stuff. And there's a, that really famous clip of him uh, on the Tonight programme with Cliff Mitchellmore, and it is the, uh, he's representing the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Long-Haired Men, where he seems <laughs> genuinely upset, doesn't he, yeah, yeah. Uh, at the, uh, the treatment that they're getting. He's talking about all the abuse they get in the streets and saying, this just isn't on. And there's a, there's a few of them there, isn't there? They're all kind of set like, like you know, older choir boys, really. And he's saying, look, I think we all like long hair. We don't see why other people should persecute us because of it. So you get this idea of Bowie already kind of, you know, swimming against the stream here, doing his own thing. Quite happy to mix it up. And then uh, inevitably there was the uh, the Bob Dylan phase, which yes. is kind of anti-fashion, really. I mean, yeah. Dylan was very stylish in the mid-60s, mm. wasn't he, with his cap and his suits and all that. Yeah. But uh, it was knitted jumpers and curly hair, yeah. uh, which is a Beck in the Marts lab and all that kind of That's stuff, right. wasn't it? And of course, as the 70s dawned, you've got the famous androgynous look. The dress, the man dress, uh, designed by Mr Fish, who was an amazing designer uh, that Bowie wore, kind of reclining on the cover of The Man Who uh, Sold the World. And then he's wearing these big boots, the blouses, the voluminous pants, all that kind of stuff, uh, as worn on the back of Hunky Dory, of course. And then we're getting back into Freddie Beretti territory yeah. there. So we're talking about also the bright red boxer boots, which, were, you know, the opening section of the old grey whistle test where you can just see his foot yeah. tapping, he's got those boots on. He just, he just looks so great, always oh, looks so great. Off stage, I'm a robot. Mm. On stage, I achieve emotion. It's probably why I prefer dressing up as Ziggy to being David. Yeah, and his mum said at the time, I'm not bothered. She says, as long as he remains a boy, I can't see any harm in it at all. And he's going through all these different styles very, very quickly in rapid succession, isn't he? So he's got the Ziggy look. He's got the, um, you know, the face flash post-Ziggy, Aladdin Sane look, the pirate patch, uh, that great navy and white striped jacket with the enormous lapels that was designed by Freddie Beretti that he wore. There's a famous picture of him and Mick Ronson on a train going up to Scotland wearing that thing. It's a great piece of work. But you, And you're also mentioning the eye patch there as a sense of fashion, but I think I think he just had conjunctivitis. Did he really? I think so. <laughs> Is that right? For the when I, he's, I don't oh, think it was. I don't. I mean, they all call it the pirate look, and yeah, he's got yeah, that yeah. great Futurama or Kent guitar same right. thing, uh, and uh, the red dungarees and the eye patch. And I believe that he did have conjunctivitis. Right? It wasn't an affectation. <laughs> um, That's fine. Great. Well, he turned it into a fashion statement. Clearly, it's just wonderful. Got to mention the you know, real like, one-off things like that uh, famous cobweb bodysuit that was designed by Natasha Kornilov for the 1980 floor show. It sort of had hands on the front, didn't it? He did. Now, apparently and uh, this had uh, the, a hand originally on the crotch as well, so it looked like mannequin's hands, didn't yeah, it? Placed yeah. around the, the, the webbing of the costume. Mm. And there was one which was placed over gr- uh, Bowie's groin, right? Uh, but it was it was rejected because it was obviously it was for the 1980 floor show. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, it might have been NBC or whoever it was who was uh, pulling the strings but mm. said, that, that's got to go. <laughs> but what a great, that, that would have made it even better, wouldn't it? Just a hand right on the crotch. Almost again like an odd codpiece. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Got to mention as well this uh, the white silk suit that was designed by Kanzai Yamamoto with accompanying cloak that he wore on the Aladdin Sane tour, which had this fabulous uh, 
uh, red and black uh, Bowie, sort of Japanese lettering on there. Down the arm, I think it's spelt David Bowie, and on the back it said uh, it was translated as one who spits out words in a fiery manner. You see, uh, the David Bowie is exhibition, and I did I saw it three times, but I have got a terrible memory. But I remember what was in that, and I do remember looking up. So you you just you know gazing around at all this wonderful stuff, and then you look up, and it was it was above eye level. It was Ooh, kind of on top of an right. exhibition, mm. and it was a, a Bowie mannequin with that the white kimono oh. one, which was a, a, a breathtaking piece of work. One of my favourites of Yamamoto's is that vinyl bodysuit, which had these enormous pants, didn't it? Bowie's kind of great shot of him kind of leaning forward in that. That's the first thing you see when you go into the exhibition. Oh, is it? Well, it oh. was at the V&A, anyway. Right, OK. Moving on, obviously, you know, he's going to Diamond Dogs phase and Young Americans, he's in suits all of a sudden. He's got wearing suits by Yves Saint Laurent. Beretti is doing like the mustard yellow suit, quite a famous shot, and as we mentioned, the pale blue one that adorns the cover of David Live. I mean, it was around about this time. I, I remember, this is a good one. So uh, Steve Hanley and I went to Butlins, I think, in Filey, probably around about 1975. Right. Um, and at that point in time, people were all starting to wear Oxford bags because Bowie was kind of wearing those high-waistband yeah. pants again and all that kind of stuff. You'd often see Bowie it, it, it wearing a hat, mm. it was that brown hat with a band around it, and, and they were selling Bowie hats. So you could buy Bowie hats, Ooh. but they were made of felt. Right, so they weren't very, very hardy. <laughs> and, and so me and Steve Hanley we were, were walking around with these hats on thinking we were the bee's knees. So we didn't have the confidence or the hair right. to get the Bowie cut and we weren't going to go around in Japanese print jumpsuits. No. Um, but the Bowie hat, we thought, yeah, this is a little statement. We love Davy Bowie, you know. So we, we, bought, we bought them. We went to Butlin, but then it rained. And of <laughs> course, what happens to felt when it rains? <laughs> it collapses. It collapses. <laughs> so I think by the end of the holiday, I think the hat's rim was uh, keeping our uh, ears warm. Oh, do you have photographs? No. Oh, what a terrible, no, terrible no. shame. We then kind of move on, don't we, to station to station look, which was, you know, almost like a upscale way to look. It was all very minimal, black and white, monochrome, all that stuff. And the story goes that Bowie had gone to see a production of Cabaret on the West End and seen Judy Dench in that and thought, I love that look, I'm going to take it. So that was the chief inspiration. And we talk a lot about theatre and how it affected Bowie, but we've not really looked at Cabaret. But if you think about it, when, he, when we were talking about The Elephant Man uh, mm. and Bowie's uh, stint on Broadway, yeah. he said, I loved it in New York because you'd see all these stars, Al Pacino walking around, this, that and the other. And at one point he does mention you could see Joel Grey from Cabaret, yeah. the film, jogging. So Cabaret obviously was a, a big thing for him as well. And all the artistic things surrounding Cabaret, the fact it was written by Christopher Isherwood and the rest of that. You Berlin. Know, yeah, Weimar all, yeah. Republic. And all that kind of stuff. Uh, 77, of course, he, you know, he dresses down a bit. So in keeping with the records themselves, Low and Heroes, Bowie is sort of very much just the, the, actual, you know, the casual guy on the street, looking great still, denim shirts and the turned-up jeans and all the rest of it. His hair is just like his normal colour. On the Bing Crosby Christmas special, yeah. he just, I mean, he's so, he's so brilliantly dressed, but he's not outlandish at all, wouldn't draw attention to anybody. No, he? not at all. And then we kind of skip forward to the great comeback of 83 when he's doing Let's Dance and the Serious Moonlight tour, and suddenly he's wearing these really sharp suits, isn't he? He's doing the famous press conference at Claridge's in London, and he has this uh, sort of grey suit on. Look at him, peroxide hair, just like a man reborn. That bright yellow hair took me aback. Yeah. I wasn't expecting that. It did too. So not only bright yellow hair, but he had the sort of bright yellow suit as well so you go and see that tour it was a it was either usually he'd be wearing like the bright yellow canary yellow suit wouldn't it or a lime green one 
Yeah, I don't even know if it was the same suit, but uh, you know, different light. by lighting. It, yeah. it could have been. I can't remember. I mean, I like you. I was at Milton Keynes, but mm. at Milton Keynes, I was right down the front through a, a lot of the bands, which I didn't want to see. If mm. I'm dead honest, and yeah. then when Bowie came on, it just turned into a, a sprawling mass of idiots coming from the back, yeah. just fighting their way to the front. So, uh, and I was with my missus. Otherwise, obviously, I would have just been trading blows for, oh. for for the whole of Bowie's set, probably. But uh, as it stood, we retreated. Yeah, well, I was at the back. I wasn't mm. pushing forward though, Mark. I was just Good standing on the ground. Good you know. job. Uh, we should mention, but you know, later years as well, he wore that incredible Union Jack frock coat that was designed by Alexander McQueen uh, for Earthling, Earthling years. And he and uh, Iman would often sort of feature on, on catwalks, wouldn't they? Even by well, she was quite well known for fashion, wasn't she? Well, she was a model, wasn't she? <laughs> oh, yeah, of course <laughs> oh, she was. That would be it. right then. So, you know, 2004, they're doing an advertising campaign for uh, Tommy Hilfiger's spring collection. And Jean-Paul Gaultier called Bowie the absolute rock star, transcended the eras, creating the musically intellectually and humanly. The A to Z of David Bowie was written and presented by Rob Hughes and Mark Riley and recorded and edited by Howard Nock. If you'd like to review or rate this podcast, well, that would be much appreciated. In the next episode... Five years. Friars Aylesbury. Sarinda Fox. Feathers. 